episode 3 of Trafalgar Squared. Today I'm going to introduce you to two of the most common types of fighting ships of the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic era, the 74-gun third-rate and the frigate. In any naval story of these times, you're likely to encounter at least one of these, and knowing a bit about them is going to bring those stories more vividly to life. I'll talk a little bit about how they were built, the layout, how crews were organised, and I'll throw in some interesting facts. Now, there's a marked dichotomy here. Whether under full sail with a following breeze or battling a raging storm, there would have been a sort of glorious, breathtaking, majestic beauty about the ships of the line and the frigates that I'm going to talk about. These ships have graced thousands of paintings and lots of people lovingly recreate them now as exquisite models. But of course, they were ultimately instruments of power, death and destruction. These ships were first and foremost floating batteries designed to bring overwhelming firepower to bear on an enemy. At the Battle of Trafalgar, the Franco-Spanish fleet could, in theory, fire a total of 27.5 tonnes of iron if all their guns fired at once, and the Brits could return fire with 19.5 tonnes of iron. In the battle, much of this tonnage was fired at point-blank range, with the sides of the ships touching. A single broadside from HMS Victory weighed in at more than all the weight of shot fired by the entire British artillery at the Battle of Waterloo. Some of these broadsides passed through the whole length of the very crowded ships that they were firing on. The principal tactic of naval warfare of this period was the line of battle, developed by the British in the 17th century and replacing the galley warfare wherein ships simply sought out an enemy and attacked them. The line of battle allowed a fleet to function as a unit, even in the chaos and smoke of a fleet engagement. Ships deemed to be formidable enough to take their place in the line of battle were the first rate, which was a ship of 100 guns or more, the second rate of 90 to 98 guns, and then the third rate of 64 to 80 guns, of which the most common by far was the 74-gun ship. After this were ships not deemed big enough to take their place in the line of battle. The fourth rates of 40, uh, sorry, 50 to 60 guns, fifth rate of 32 to 48, and the sixth rate of 20 to 32 guns. Beautiful though they were, these ships were sometimes host to scenes of the most unbelievable violence and real horror, and the British Navy delivered numerous defeats against her enemies during this period. But actually, if you were in the Royal Navy, you were far more likely to be killed by scurvy, typhus, malaria, yellow fever, dysentery, cholera, or a host of other ailments than in a sea battle. In 1780, the sick rate in the Royal Navy was about one in three, although this had been improved to about one in eight by 1804. During the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars, the Royal Navy lost 72,000 dead from disease or accident on board. During roughly the same 22-year period, less than 2,000 men were killed in the six major and four minor fleet engagements and four squadron battles that occurred. Another 13,600 perished in ships lost in bad weather and accidents. Right, the third rate. Third rate ship was the backbone of the Navy, with 130 in commission in 1799, 29 of which had been captured from the enemy. At Trafalgar, of the 27 ships of the line, on the British side, 20 were third rates. Of the 33 Franco-Spanish fleet, 29 were third rates. 
Amongst the third rates, the 74 gun was the most common. A famous example is the Bellerophon, built in 1786 and named after a figure from Greek mythology. She was, of course, known as the Billy Ruffian by the sailors. She would fight in three major fleet engagements, the glorious 1st of June, the Battle of the Nile, and the Battle of Trafalgar. This was also the ship onto which Napoleon stepped in 1815 at Rochefort, after Waterloo, and in surrendering himself to the captain, brought to an end the Napoleonic Wars. Napoleon is reputed to have commented on how quiet it was on the British ship, suggesting perhaps that on the French ships he would have been familiar with, there was more yelling and perhaps less discipline. The Bellerophon was soon after witness to remarkable scenes at Plymouth Sound when a massive flotilla of small boats crowded around her hull, hoping to catch a glimpse of Bonaparte taking his constitutional walk on the quarterdeck. A third-rate 74 carried 590 to 640 officers and men, plus 125 marines, known as Royal Marines after 1802. French and Spanish ships tended to carry more crews, and a 74 could have as many as 700 souls on board, living and working 24 hours a day in a space that was 168 feet at its very longest along the gun deck by 47 feet at its widest. These ships were heaving with people because they were extremely labour-intensive to handle and required large gun crews and soldiers for fighting and keeping order. This intense crowding was the reason that a raking shot passing the whole length of the ship could kill hordes of people. Right, so how were these ships built? Let's just go into that briefly. Excepting, of course, captured ships, British vessels were made in Britain's naval dockyards, which, by the 1750s, had become the largest industrial organisation in the world. A 74-gun third-rate was basically made of oak, and it required 2,000 oak trees to build one, clearing 50 acres of forest if it was planted with trees sufficiently far apart. Not surprisingly, good oak was soon in short supply. In fact, men from the Admiralty were constantly in the woods searching for trees containing what was called compass timber, meaning suitably curved limbs that were needed for things like the futtocks, the curved ribs of the ship. The shortage of good compass timber meant that old timbers from ships being broken up were often used, unknowingly importing the spores of rot into a brand new ship. In fact, as the war progressed, it became increasingly necessary to use green wood, as the demand for seasoned wood could not be met. But green wood was more prone to rot and it shrinks as it dries. Ships often needed major repairs soon after launching. Nelson's flagship, the Victory, cost 97,400 to build in 1753, but in the 15 years between 1790 and 1805, repairs cost almost twice as much as it had cost to build the ship from scratch. It was a fact, and perhaps I should whisper this in case any particularly patriotic Brits are listening, that the French were on the whole better designers and builders of ships than the Brits, and as soon as the Royal Navy captured a French ship, the vessel's lines were often taken off and she was replicated as closely as possible. The building process began in a huge room where the plans were turned into chalked shapes drawn on the floor of every piece of timber that would make up the structure of the ship. Patterns were then cut out of thin wood, just like a dressmaker cutting out shapes from brown paper. They then began sawing and shaping the various pieces, starting with the keel and building the ship up on blocks. Internal and external planking was added, 
and then riders added to the inner planking, creating a sort of ship within a ship. In some places, the hull was two feet thick. The various decks were laid on beams crossing the ship, each with a slight camber to allow water to run away. So the decks uppermost was the poop deck, aft, meaning the stern or rear of the ship, and the forecastle forward. Then came the quarter deck, next down the waist, upper deck, gun deck, and orlop, which was below the waterline and was where the wounded were brought in battle. A deck was generally only called a deck if it carried guns when describing a ship, thus you will hear orlop and waste rather than orlop deck and waste deck. To protect the hull from being gnawed away by teredo and gribble worms, a 74-gun ship would have had 40,000 sheets of copper weighing over 12 tonnes nailed to her bottom. It is from this practice that we get the phrase meaning that something is of good quality, i.e. a copper-bottomed deal. Once a ship was built, the stores and equipment brought on board would weigh in at about the same total as the ship itself. To give some examples, the shot for the guns weighed 80 tonnes with 20 tonnes of gunpowder, five anchors weighing 15 tonnes with their massive cables weighing even more at 25 tonnes. Needless to say, all of this stuff had to be shifted about by hand. One of the most common injuries for seamen were hernias, the result of endless heavy lifting. With all sails flying, a 74-gun had 10,000 yards of canvas catching the wind, 20 different types of sails, from the main course to the main topgallant royal. The sails were not gleaming white, as they are in some films, but a sort of warm tint of raw umber, with a little raw sienna, or perhaps a touch of yellow ochre, a detail I'd love to get right in our TV drama, which, by the way, you can check out at www trafalgar.tv. The 74 carried 28 32-pounder guns on the lower deck, 14 each side, each weighing three and a half tons with the gun carriage. They fired a round weighing 32 pounds with a diameter of just over six inches, with a muzzle velocity of 487 meters per second and a range of about 3,000 yards with a 10-pound charge of powder. They could fire plain cannonballs for punching holes in the enemy's hull and spraying huge wooden splinter shards like shrapnel. Or they could be loaded with grape shot to spray across an enemy's crowded deck to achieve maximum casualties. There was also bar and chain shot which brought down masts and rigging. In the opening salvos of Trafalgar, a double-headed cannon hit a group of eight marines standing near Nelson, killing them all. The effect of firing all the guns at once would have created massive recoil, so in a broadside guns were fired in quick succession. Of course ships were always moving in response to the sea. You fired on the upward roll to attack masts, spars and rigging, on the downward roll to inflict heavy losses on enemy crews. In addition to the 32-pounders, there were 28 long 12-pounders mounted on the middle deck, each weighing 3,400 weight. On the poop deck, were eight nine-pounders. The ship, cut cross-section, had a considerable tumble home, giving her, in cross-section, a wine-glass shape, the whole thing designed to compensate for the instability created by having heavy guns on decks above the waterline. Now let's have a look at the frigate. A frigate was a lighter, more manoeuvrable ship, built for speed and with a single gun deck. 
there were three masted fifth or sixth rated ships of 20 to 50 guns on the main deck. Most had 32 to 48 guns. They were used for scouting and cruising, meaning that they wandered and agreed territory seeking out enemy ships to fight, or indeed cargo ships belonging to the enemy or anyone vaguely allied with the enemy that could then be captured for their value as prizes. Their official complement was between 220 and 300 men. Although as war progressed, it got harder and harder to source crews, and this could drop as low as 120. They lived and worked 24 hours a day in a space 130 foot at its very longest by 35 feet at its very widest. Two tennis courts placed end to end are larger. Frigates were known as the eyes of the fleet. I think of them as horses to the elephants of the first, second and third raters. You don't want to send a load of elephants on an unnecessary journey, so you send horses first to check things out. Nelson said in 1798, If I was to die at this moment, want of frigates would be found stamped on my heart. History buffs will recall that Queen Mary said something similar about Calais. Nelson spent a substantial part of his career in charge of fleets anxiously searching for the enemy, and the lack of frigates caused him so much anxiety it left him with a permanent nervous condition that today we'd probably call panic attacks. Frigates were formidable pieces of kit, and there was a glamour to them. Let loose on a cruise in a frigate, a captain could make a name for himself. Possibly the greatest frigate commander was Sir Edward Pellew. He captured the first enemy frigate of the war on the 18th of June 1793, when he defeated the Cleopatra, while captain of the 36-gun frigate Nymph. He also managed to capture the French codebook of secret signals. The French captain, who was mortally wounded, was found trying to eat them, but in his confusion he was actually eating his own commission. The codebook was sent intact to the Admiralty. Sir Edward Pellew went on to many more exploits, including the defeat of the 74-gun droit de l'homme, while in command of another frigate, HMS Indefatigable. He also had an admirable habit of personally rescuing people who were drowning, one of the many fascinating figures from this era, and perhaps a subject for a Trafalgar Squared podcast one day. The main armament of a 32-gun frigate was 26 12-pounders, split between port and starboard of the main deck, with four 6-pounders on the quarterdeck and two 6-pounders on the forecastle. The captain also had to put up with two 12-pounder guns in his great cabin at the after end of the main deck, but compared to everyone else, the captain lived in considerable comfort. Forward of his great cabin was the coach on one side, often used as a dining room, and the bed place on the other, where a cot hung from the ropes in which the captain slept. Everyone else lived and slept on the lower deck, the vast majority in hammocks, slung so tightly together that they often touched. So let's look at the layout of a frigate. At the aft end of the ship was the gun room, called the wardroom in larger ships. A large table running down the middle and tiny cabins off the side, each six foot by three foot, with less than five foot four inches of headspace, providing accommodation for the lieutenants, marine officers, master, purser and surgeon. All the flimsy wooden bulkheads, walls to a landlubber, could be removed or swung up and fixed to the deck head, ceiling to a landlubber, in advance of a battle so that their flying splinters didn't add to the mayhem. When a ship was cleared for action, you had a clear view fore and aft on any deck above the waterline, and things like furniture were all loaded into ship's barges and towed behind. Forward of the gunroom were small cabins for bosun, gunner, 
carpenter and captain's clerk, followed by a large cabin which was the midshipman's berth. Midshipmen were apprentice officers and were often children as young as twelve. Forward of the midshipman berth was where the marines slung their hammocks, forming a barrier between the officers and warrant officers aft and the men forward. At the forward end of the main deck, you would likely find a small livestock farm, known as the manger, providing fresh meat, eggs and milk. Just abaft of this was the galley stove for boiling up the great coppers of food to feed the crew. A ship had not only cabins, but also rooms, which were storage places. Thus there was a bread room, a fish room, a spirit room, and a powder room or magazine where the gunpowder was kept. Always guarded, this was a room designed to produce no spark, where men wore flannel boots when they worked. The magazine was built as a box fitted into the ship so that it was lower than the deck and could be flooded in an emergency. Before a battle, thick rolls of flannel, called a fear naught, were hung in the passage leading to the magazine and soaked in water. When flames did reach a powder room, they produced some of the biggest explosions up to that point in history, as happened, for example, to the French ship Lorient at the Battle of the Nile. OK, so let's look a bit at crews. But first of all, if a man wanted to check what his duties were on board ship, he could do this by consulting the Quarters, Watch and Station Bill. This would tell him exactly what duties were expected of him in almost all circumstances, including what division of boarding party he was part of when boarding an enemy and even what weapon he was to carry. There were two other important documents. The captain's standing orders was effectively a book handed to the first lieutenant by the captain when he first took over the ship. It stated how he wanted things run and could include such details as what uniforms were to be worn and how people were to address each other. There was also the Articles of War, which were posted on every ship in the Royal Navy and read out loud to the ship's company once a month. So, the men, the crews. On a 36-gun frigate, there would be five commissioned officers, including the captain, first lieutenants and other lieutenants. These were men trained by the Admiralty in seamanship, navigation and gunnery. They were not specialists, as the warrant officers were. There were five seamen warrant officers and ten civilian warrant officers who did jobs similar to what someone might do on land, such as a purser, surgeon or chaplain. There might be between 15 and 20 midshipmen on board, often dreaming of becoming great admirals, but they had no guarantee that they would ever command a ship. Before this could happen, they had to pass the lieutenant's exam, which they could only take if they could prove that they had been listed on board ships for at least six years, two of them as a master's mate or a midshipman. Some were listed as being on board ships as young as two years old in order to cheat the system. Both Nelson and Collingwood, the man who took charge of the fleet at Trafalgar on Nelson's death, went to sea aged 12. Years later, Nelson commented that this was too young. The boatswains were highly skilled seamen who had to report on the state of the ship and sails and took charge of all deck activities. Boatswain's mates were also warrant officers and they kept discipline and did the flogging. Quartermasters were also very skilled seamen in charge of steering the ship and the distribution of cargo and ballast, which had a huge impact on the way that the ship handled. The largest group on board were ordinary and able seamen, 84 men on a 36-gun frigate. A seaman was a very skilled person. He could name every part of the ship and every conceivable manoeuvre and weather condition. He could tie 20 to 30 knots and find a particular rope in a raging storm in the dark, often at great height. 
there would be about 37 landmen on board. These might be men who had been highly trained to some other trade on land, but they were now at sea and having to learn a completely new set of skills. Many would have been pressed into service, literally yanked off the streets, helicoptered out of their lives and forced into a life of service at sea. Many also volunteered, although it's difficult to be precise about numbers, because pressed men were given the option to volunteer on the paperwork in return for money. Landsmen were in effect trainee, ordinary seamen, and the most able of them, and the most agile, joined the top men for training. There were about 17 artisans on board, such as sailmakers, rope makers and armourers, with special rank. They could not be pressed and were protected from menial tasks. Ship's servants were often young boys who might be from privileged backgrounds and intended to become midshipmen. Other boys from less privileged backgrounds also worked as servants and were traditionally powder monkeys in action, ferrying the powder from where the gunner and his mates handed it out in the magazine. When weighing anchor, they had to assist with the nipper, a rope attached to the messenger cable of the anchor, and small children are still called nippers today sometimes. Among the crews, there was a social scale in which the top men were the aristocrats. When weighing and anchoring, they worked the heavy cable and the capstan, but they worked high over the decks on the yards of the top sails, top gallants and royals, in all weathers, where a single slip meant almost certain death. There would be 24 of them on a 36-gun frigate. Next came the forecastle men, 10 in each watch, often older, experienced men who worked the anchor, the foresail, the jib and bowsprit, and the six forward guns in action. The afterguard worked the aftermost part of the ship, working the braces, the ropes which braced around the yards. This was the largest group, with about 40 men in each watch. It contained the largest number of unskilled men, and they spent a lot of their time hauling on ropes. The wasters were thus named because they were stationed in the waist of the ship, where they handled the fore and main sheets, pumped the bilges, and looked after the livestock. Finally, the idlers were the ship's day workers, who did not stand a watch. Numbering about 25, they included the cook, who was often an experienced seaman who had lost a limb, the carpenter and his mates, gunner and his mates, officer's servants and purser's assistant. Finally, on a 36-gun frigate, there would be about 50 marines. They were there to ensure the security of the ship's officers, preventing mutiny and generally maintaining discipline and in battle, they engaged enemy crews by either firing from their own decks or boarding. So let's have a look at how a day played out on board. The day was measured out in watches of four hours, measured by a sand glass and marked with the ringing of a bell. So one bell would ring at 12.30, two at 1pm, three at 1.30, four at two and so on until 4pm when the watch ended with eight bells. Sailors did watches of four hours on, four hours off, day and night so their bodies had to get used to a completely different way of resting and working. So just before 4am, the quartermasters awoke the midshipmen, mates and lieutenant of the watch, and then the boatswain stood at the hatchway and piped all hands and shouted for either the larboard or the starboard watch to get up from their hammocks. Every man was assigned either the starboard or larboard watch, and every man had a number, even numbers belonging to the larboard watch, odd to the starboard watch. Now, at the time of Trafalgar, the word for the left side of the ship was larboard. The word port was used for helm orders, but the word larboard was not officially jettisoned to avoid confusion until 1844. At 4am, the new watch took over the ship, taking over the wheel, the lookouts, 
hove the log to determine the speed of the ship and record all information on the log board. The cook, meanwhile, would start to prepare breakfast, which was often an oatmeal gruel served with Scotch coffee, which actually wasn't coffee at all, but burned ship's biscuit crushed up and served in hot water. At about 5am, the watch began to wash down the decks and polish the planks with holy stones and prayer books. These were abrasive stones, thus named because of their resemblance in size to those holy books. Elsewhere, the entire ship was polished and every loose rope tidied into neat coils. At about 7.30am, the boatswain's mate piped all hands to hammocks, and at eight the captain might appear, and if he approved, then the boatswain piped for breakfast. Between eight and twelve was the forenoon watch. The crews worked in messes based on who they ate with, and selected members of a mess prepared the main meal of the day, which was served at noon. Others would work on restowing provisions, maintenance, or if not on watch, they could sleep or hang out or undertake their own chores, such as mending their clothes. By six bells at eleven, the captain, having examined the midshipmen's logs, the gunners, boatswains and carpenters' accounts, and conferenced with his first lieutenant, might call all hands to witness punishment. From 1740, the men received a daily ration of alcohol, designed to bring some sort of regularity to its consumption. They usually received two rations a day. If it was grog, which was rum and water, it was a pint. If it was beer, a gallon. Or if they were in the Mediterranean, it might be a pint of what they called black strap, but we just call red wine. Beer was the favourite. Saving up your alcohol ration or getting hold of other people's rations so that you could get really drunk was a serious, if relatively common, offence. At four in the afternoon, the watch changed and the following four-hour period was divided into two dog watches. During this period, an evening meal was served. The officers in the wardroom ate and drank much better fare than the crew, but they paid for it out of their mess subscriptions. Just before sunset, the drummer beat to quarters and all hands reported to their battle stations for an inspection. If all was in good order, those preparing to sleep could recover their hammocks from where they were stowed in netting. At eight o'clock, the watch changed, those coming off watch grabbing a few hours of sleep before the middle watch from midnight to 4am. So the purpose of all that was to give you some detail, so that next time you hear about a frigate or a 74, you can have a real sense of what that was. One thing I haven't mentioned is that the captain was God. Not only did he have power of life and death over the crew and the power to inflict horrendous punishment, he dictated almost every aspect of daily life for everybody on board. He could not be addressed without permission, and when he was on the quarterdeck, he could not be approached. He lived in considerably more comfort than everyone else, but he was very isolated. It was not a role that suited everyone, and some slipped into alcoholism or even madness. Now, probably the most thumbed and dishevelled book in my library is the very, very excellent Life in Nelson's Navy by the brilliant, brilliant Dudley Pope, and I recommend you add this to your own library. I have drawn heavily on that book in this podcast. I also recommend a wonderful book called A Sea of Words, which is a lexicon and companion for Patrick O'Brien's seafaring tales. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting me on Patreon by going to patreon.com and searching for Adam Preston. It could make the difference between me keeping going with this and having to stop. As I've mentioned elsewhere, well over a thousand people have now said yes to my epic TV drama about Nelson, Emma and the build-up to Trafalgar by going to www.trafalgar.tv and filling out a very simple form. 
you can also learn about which movie star has given his enthusiastic endorsement to the project. The reason I created the website Trafalgar.tv is to prove that there is a global audience interested in this subject. And of the thousand plus signups I have already got, after just two podcasts and a bit of Facebook posting, only about half are from the UK. And I'm based in the UK, so most of what I'm doing is reaching a domestic audience at this very early stage. So I'm on my way to proving that there are people all over the world who are a potential audience for Trafalgar. And I'd love you to be involved at this very early stage by simply saying yes at trafalgar.tv. Thank you for listening.